Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm John Palfreman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Each month, John and I take a look at a specific topic of interest in the Parkinson's community as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And John, today we take up a subject that has tantalized researchers for many years, and that's growth factors. The hope has been that if scientists could figure out a way to deliver these chemicals to the brain, that they'd boost the remaining dopamine supply of someone with Parkinson's. And it turns out to be this fascinating story, one that of both high hopes and dashed expectations, and one that I think is also quite revealing about the inherent challenges involved in finding a solution for Parkinson's disease. Well, I agree. And to take up this subject, we talk with a brilliant researcher, Dr. Jeff Cordova, a professor at Rush University Medical School in Chicago. I began our interview by asking Jeff to explain just what growth factors do in the brain, and to talk about what happened when he and other researchers set out to test a particular growth factor known as GDNF, or glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor. Growth factors are chemicals that support the health of neurons, much as a fertilizer helps plants to thrive. So the exciting idea was that such chemicals might rescue dying neurons in the brains of Parkinson patients. Is that correct? That's correct. Not only just rescue them, but have them work more effectively, have them make more of the chemicals we want them to make, but, but essentially preserve their viability, their life, and also to make them work better. So initially it looked very promising, didn't it? Is that correct? That's correct. So back in those days, all the models that we used to evaluate the efficacy of GDNF were toxin-based models. And in toxin-based models, GDNF works fabulously if you apply it in a way which it should work. What does that mean, giving it to monkeys with a model of Parkinson's? So what I mean by that is if you make a full lesion of the dopamine system in animals and later on give GDNF, it really doesn't work very well because the cells that you want it to work on are no longer there. But scientists, including my lab and, and many others, actually designed the studies without a real understanding as to what the Parkinson's brain looks like when we are going to apply these trophic factors. And we applied them when there was much more substrate available in the animal models than uh, was accurately modeling of the human case. So did it look promising at the beginning? Oh, it looked very promising in the beginning. So did you think that this, we're talking about 20 years ago, did you think this might potentially be an answer for Parkinson's disease because it rescued? Absolutely. We thought that with all the potency of this molecule that we would be able to preserve dopaminergic neurons, we'd be able to have them make more dopamine and really would have a major impact on the treatment or momentum for uh, patients with Parkinson's disease. It sounds like, Jeff, that you know some of the obstacles that you ran into early on both have to do with animal models of the disease where you're applying a, a toxin that sort of mimics what happens in Parkinson's, and also this question of whether or not there were enough available dopamine neurons still to be supported. In terms of those problems, what did you begin to learn? Was it that this could only work if the disease were less advanced, or was it just a fundamental difference, as we've learned in many other things, between what the actual human disease is versus what we know about these animal models? So 
when we got started with this approach and this road, we didn't realize that what the major pathology in Parkinson's disease was. And what that is, is the misfolding of a normal protein called alpha-synuclein. And so all our models were based upon toxins, and they were based upon the fact that Bill Langston demonstrated now probably 30 years ago, and John, you know the story well, I'm sure you do with Dave as well, where drug addicts were given, were manipulating illicit drugs, and they ended up giving themselves Parkinson's disease by formulating this compound called MPTP. And then scientists took this compound and started giving it to animals and were able to recreate many of the features of Parkinson's disease. But what it didn't recreate was the fundamental pathology that Parkinson's disease is caused by a misfolding of this protein called alpha-synuclein. And so when we do the models now, and we have a better understanding as to the real pathology in what we call sporadic Parkinson's disease, or what most people have in terms of Parkinson's disease, that this trophic factor doesn't work. And what happens is this alpha-synuclein, when it misfolds, reduces the amount of the receptor, the sort of the, the lock for which the GDNF key fits into, to signal to save these cells. And also, there's another factor that we call NUR1 also is reduced by alpha-synuclein. So when you recreate the model faithfully, these trophic factors don't work nearly as effectively as we initially uh, found out. So that is one issue. The other issue is that, as our lab demonstrated, that by the time a patient is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease for five years, the amount of substrate which is available for the GDNF to work on is dramatically and comprehensively reduced. So that makes things, again, far more difficult for things to go forward. Let me pursue the first of those two issues a bit further with you, Jeff, if I might, mm -hmm. because it sounds like the problem is that this particular, we're in a sense trying to apply a therapy for a problem where it, it doesn't match up right, that while it works in theory and works in these animal models, the damage that alpha-synuclein does is not just the fact that it may be what is the culprit as far as killing off dopamine neurons. It also fundamentally alters the structure of the cells themselves in a way that this hope-for therapy can't, as you put it, be the key that fits in, in the lock. Is that the problem? It's, it's, it's a strategy that doesn't work. That's right. That's 100% correct. And so there are certain ways that we may be able to get around this. And so the two factors that I mentioned before, the receptor, that's called a RET receptor, and also uh, NER1, which is involved in the synthesis of dopamine, we could put those back, theoretically, and in fact, there are groups that are working hard to do that. So you can, with using gene therapy, put those factors back in dopamine cells. And then it's been demonstrated that once you do that, the GDNF will work again. Hmm. So there are fixes along the way. They're complicated ones, and they need further exploration. But it is possible to get around the pathology that alpha-synuclein encumbers. And then on the second point that you mentioned, which also seems so crucial, that if you apply this strategy too late in the game, there's just not much there left to rescue. The problem is that 
it's actually what we consider too late in the game is really early in the game because people have to be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease based upon their motor symptoms. And by that time, there's already significant degeneration. So would it be your hypothesis, Jeff, that if you did have a way of identifying people much, much earlier, that a growth factor strategy could work, not only because there would be more dopamine still available to bolster and support and rescue, but also that the damage that the alpha-synuclein had done to altering, making the lock more difficult to pick, that that wouldn't have happened either? Uh, we don't know whether that wouldn't have happened, but certainly one would suspect that it would happen to a much lesser extent. And yes, one of the biggest problems right now in terms of therapeutic approaches, especially disease-modifying approaches for Parkinson's disease, is not having what we call a biomarker, so something that will tell us that someone has Parkinson's disease before they actually get Parkinson's, and that is a major area of scientific investigation right now. John. So, Jeff, it looked much more promising back in 2000 when you started the biotech company. Could you tell us how the gene therapy system works? Because that presumably was, was a successful way of getting the, the drug, the growth factor into the brain. Could you tell us a bit about serogene? So there was serogene... Initially, let me just step back a little before serogene. So in 2000, I published a paper in Science which demonstrated that gene delivery, delivery of the GDNF gene into both aged monkeys and Parkinsonian monkeys, these are monkeys made Parkinsonian biotoxin, we were able to completely rescue the nigrostradal system from both an anatomical, neurochemical, and also a behavioral perspective. So this led Mark Tuzinski and I to found, and Armin Blesch, to found a company called Serogene. We wanted to pursue GDNF gene therapy. Uh, however, Amgen owned the patent to the GDNF gene, and we were unable to license that patent going forward. So we ended up licensing the patent to a sister molecule called Nurturin, uh, from uh, Gene Johnson and Jeff Milbrand at Washington University. And that allowed us to pursue gene delivery of a GDNF-like molecule uh, in a path towards the clinic. Now, how it works is the following. So basically, it is a brain surgery. Someone would come in for surgery early in the morning. They would get a frame, stereotactic frame put on their head. They would go and get an MRI scan to help with targeting of putting the uh, gene in the proper location. And then they would go up into the operating room where um, small size of a nickel, uh, a burr hole would be made in the skull, and needles would be passed into the brain, and this gene therapy would be injected into a, a region where dopamine is liberated. What happens at that point is that the virus, now virus is kind of a scary word, but what we're doing is taking advantage of the fact that viruses get in cells and that's what makes you sick when you get a virus. But in this case, all the bad parts of the virus have been gutted and you don't get sick from this, but the virus gets into the cell and into the nucleus of the cell and the gene, which was not made in these cells previously, now makes GDNF, and it secretes GDNF, and it does this uh, theoretically forever. So that is the procedure on how gene therapy surgeries take place, and um, 
Hopefully one day we'll figure out a way to make it more efficacious. One thing I can tell you about this approach from all the different clinical trials, it appears to be very safe. There have not been any serious adverse events that I'm aware of in any of our trials, uh, meaning Seragene's trials, and also the newer trials that are ongoing. Now, Jeff, when you did the first trial on 12 patients, right, it seemed to work, didn't it? Well, this is what fools people. So, first of all, this was a phase one clinical trial, and phase one clinical trials are meant for one thing, two things, safety and tolerability. So one should not make any inferences based upon, in terms of efficacy, based upon safety and tolerability studies. There was an improvement as measured by rating scales that are standard for measuring Parkinson's disease disability. So it appeared to uh, improve. However, all these trials are what we call open label. That means that the patient knew what they got and the evaluating physician knew what they got. And this leads to non-valid evaluations of really how efficacious a treatment is. What is critical is that these these novel therapeutic strategies be evaluated in a double-blinded fashion. And in that regard, the patient doesn't know whether they got a placebo or the active treatment, and the evaluating physician doesn't know whether they got the placebo or the uh, active treatment. And because placebo effects which are defined, it's not just the patient thinking they feel better, but also the evaluating physician hoping that their patient feels better causes data not to be reliable. So when in later trials they control for the placebo effect, the benefit vanished, is that correct? That's correct. And not only did it vanish, we demonstrated that there was a placebo effect in one of our double-blind trials. So why is the placebo effect so powerful in surgical procedures in Parkinson's? Well, the the bigger the risk and the bigger the effort one has to take, I mean, brain surgery is a very big deal. And so if you're going through brain surgery, then one does it with the strong hope that you're going through this major procedure that you'll get better. Now, but I want to really help define what a placebo effect is from a clinical trials perspective. All it is is a score on a test. So it means that you did not get the active treatment, and yet your scores on a test improved. Now, why did it improve? It could be a variety of different things. One is the patient can just think they're feeling better when under a more objective analysis, they're really not. So I hear from my clinical colleagues all the time when a patient comes in for evaluation and they have them walk down the hallway, the spouse will go over to the doctor and say, for you, he walks. For me, he he can't walk. And these things do happen as a performance effect that is seen in patients with, with Parkinson's disease and other diseases. And then the other point, as I mentioned earlier, is experimental bias. Now, this doesn't mean that anyone's cheating or doing anything unethical. It's just that, you know, when someone's patient goes into these trials, you're hoping that they're going to do better. And so sometimes the numbers will work out that way when they really are not uh, valid measures. So, Jeff, the last serogene trial happened in 2013, correct? That's correct. Is that the end of this road for gene therapy, or is it back to the drawing board now? 
Well, there is an ongoing clinical trial right now. There are two trials ongoing. One is at the NIH that's being led by Howard Federoff and Chris Bankovich, in which they are doing GDNF gene therapy in patients with Parkinson's disease. I believe they've done five patients in their open-label assessment right now. Uh, Then there is an infusion trial in Bristol, England, by um, Dr. Stephen Gill, who's leading that, in in which they are infusing a protein not gene therapy, but infusing the protein into the striatum of patients with Parkinson's disease. So it's not the end of the road. Um, I think if these two trials fail, I believe it'll be the end of the road, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. To be really candid about this, Jeff, it, it sounds like your sense of this is that unless you solve the other problems, unless you figure out a way to get in with this therapy much, much earlier, and also figure out a way so that this particular key will work in this particular lock before things are gummed up unduly by alpha-synuclein, that these approaches are not likely to, to prove fruitful. Is, is that your sense? That is my sense but I'm happy to be proven wrong. (laughs) No, there are other issues with the serogene trials in which I think we did not deliver the gene therapy in an optimal fashion. And so uh, Dr. Bankovich and Fedorov, Dr. Bankovich and Fedorov are using a different infusion technique, which is likely to be, uh, have much better coverage. But still, if there aren't many fibers left there to uh, invigorate, uh, it's going to be very hard to see how this is going to be a, uh, a huge victory down the road. The other thing we still got to remember is that Parkinson's disease affects the entire brain. And in fact, we have therapies currently that are outstanding for the same things that GDNF is hoping to improve, namely deep brain stimulation uh, from a surgical point of view and, and a variety of different drugs. The real unmet need for Parkinson's disease is really not repairing this particular system, although that would be great if we could. The unmet needs are things like dementia, uh, falls. I mean, Parkinson's patients get into nursing homes for two major reasons, falls and dementia. And those, we have really very little therapeutic avenues to, for treatment. And so these, the GDNF trial will not address these at all. And that's because those symptoms in particular, balance and, and gait and dementia, are all problems that aren't caused by so much the lack of dopamine as they are the other damage that the disease does. Exactly. Exactly correct. And let me come back at, um, with one other point about one of the obstacles here, which is what you were saying before, Jeff, about the lack of a, a biomarker, not only in terms of being able to diagnose the disease earlier, but also to measure disease progression and to measure whether or not some of these therapies really work. Because right now we have this pretty crude measurement device, the UPDRS, you know, where you tap your fingers and tap your toes and all the things that patients know and love. Mm-hmm. It's not very precise, and it, and it could be. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that in the serogene trials, even though it didn't show symptomatic improvement um, because we have just this crude measure, it could be that it was allowing patients to stay just the same. They weren't getting better, but maybe they weren't getting worse. And if that's the case, then that actually could be a plus, right? Well, the problem is in being able to demonstrate that. So if you have a therapy, that is what you're describing, Dave, is disease modifying. Well, they may not get better, but they won't get worse. The number of patients that you will need to demonstrate that is very, very large. 
from a clinical trials perspective. And I don't think anyone's going to be operating on that many patients to be able to demonstrate a neuroprotective strategy, especially you know, to do brain surgery on, on you know, five, six, seven hundred patients with uh, where you think you have a neuroprotective strategy, but not a symptomatic benefit as well. It is possible but it is going to be something very difficult to prove. So for you, Jeff, for someone who had, as many others did, of course, too, both patients and people in the research community, such high hopes uh, for the benefits of growth factors, I'm curious about how this has altered your own research focus. Are you sort of putting all your attention now, or do you think all attention ought more be placed now on, on solving the problem of alpha-synuclein, that that's really the game changer? That is the game changer for me. I'm putting all my chips in on alpha-synuclein. I do very little work right now with trophic factors, but still kind of keeping it in the back of my mind. Because you know what? I'm not really that interested in trophic factors for the Nigris rail system, but I am very interested in the potential of using trophic factors down the line for these other non-motor and non-levodopa responsive symptoms. Now, but I think it's easier to address the uh, pathology directly. And so we're doing lots of work looking at how alpha-synuclein acts in the brain uh, when it's misfolded and pathological. Does it move from one cell to another? And if it does move from one cell to another and that causes progression, can we stop that? Also reducing the amount of alpha-synuclein in the brain using gene therapy methods to prevent their synthesis and lower their synthesis. Or even right now there are trials ongoing looking at antibodies to try and block uh, alpha-synuclein's uh, function. Uh, and uh, the one thing that is apparent from the initial reports is that these antibody trials are safe, and there's been very little adverse events from them. So if, if I had to start a new biotech company, I would start it around alpha-synuclein biology and the ability to mediate its uh, toxic forms. Hmm. John? Right. So immunotherapy and also the importance of biomarkers are the two things you think are critical, that if we could through imaging or some other way of measuring alpha-synuclein early, uh, plus some immunotherapy, that might be the best way to go. Well, so these are two slightly different things, John. So one is a, a biomarker doesn't have to be around alpha-synuclein. All it is is something that says, okay, you're asymptomatic, you have no symptoms, but this measure says you're going to get Parkinson's disease. So that's one thing that is absolutely critical. Another thing that we and many other people are working on, and the Fox Foundation is supporting very heavily, is to find an imaging marker for alpha-synuclein that may help us with a biomarker, not necessarily, but also I think that that will be the path towards understanding having a biomarker for progression, because I think the worse alpha-synuclein gets, the worse patients get. And then what was the third point, John? Using immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, right. So I'm optimistic. I mean, it's safe. And I do believe, you know, Andy Singleton's study that showed that all you need is to have too much alpha-synuclein. You double or triple the gene, and you get Parkinson's disease. is one of the most compelling studies in the last 50 years of Parkinson's disease research. And so th that uh, leads me to feel quite strongly that the vast majority of resources, both personal and personnel and financial, uh, should be put into uh, alpha-synuclein-related uh, uh, biology and therapies. 
Well, Jeff, so it's great to hear that you're not giving up. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. The task of mending brains turned out to be harder than you thought it would be initially, correct? Surprise, surprise. Huh? <laughs> you know, the brain's a complicated place. <laughs> but I am enthusiastic. You know, and I've been taking to going back into the clinic. I'm not a physician, as you know, but to see patients uh, the last couple of weeks to kind of um, still learn a little bit more about this disease I've been studying for, for quite some time. And uh, I do it as well as numerous colleagues do it with great passion. So I, I remain, uh, remain optimistic. That was Dr. Jeff Cordover at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. And John, in so many ways, this story seems to me kind of emblematic of the Parkinson's saga, that something that we had such high hopes for uh, wound up not working as well as, as we had hoped. And it's revealing about the limits of animal models, revealing about what we didn't really know about uh, the pathology of the disease. Uh, it's such a disappointing development, but in, in its own way, quite revealing too. Right. This was one of the ideas which I found most exciting, the idea that you could revive a, a damaged brain cell and give it new life. And I think Jeff Cordova has personally invested a lot of his time and his energy to do this. And as you say, it just proves that biology is very, very difficult. You've got um, animal models. Proving something in a, a young animal is not the same as proving something in an old human it's one thing to say growth factors can revive cells, but you've got to get them to the right part of the brain and make sure they, they do their job. And then the other thing, which, of course, is really the elephant in the room, is you've got to have enough neurons that are savable actually surviving. And that's an open question at the moment as to whether by five years into the disease there are enough neurons left in the, in the striatum to revive. And all these questions had to be answered. And I think, as you say, Jeff, has, in answering them, he's, he's decided now that this is not something he wants to pursue further, even though it's not a completely closed story because there are trials still continuing, but he's now moving his research onto alpha-synuclein. And I have to say I admire that. You know, I think so often researchers become so wed to their pet theory that they, understandably so, because they've invested so much time and energy and resources in the laboratory to try to come up with uh, proof of, of their particular approach. Jeff seems quite... Uh, ready to move on, um, that even though he has been such a leader in this area, he's ready to say, so, you know, I'm moving my chips from one part of the board to, to another, and that part of the board is, is alpha-synuclein. And I, I admire him uh, about that, but I, I do have the sense that even though he outlined possible ways you could solve some of these problems, and even though, as you suggest, there are other trials now going on, um, I think he's moved on. Agreed. And with that, we'll end this episode of Portland Countdown. Until next time, I'm John Palferman. And I'm Dave Iverson. Join us next month for the Portland Countdown. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.